Welcome to episode four of No More Silos, a podcast about cultural Christianity. My name is Erica, and this is my podcast. Welcome to it. I am so glad that you decided to join me today for episode four. Today, we are exploring American civil religion and historical Christianity. And I realize that may sound a lot like, oh, we've got this big lesson ahead of us. And I guess in some ways we do. But the reason that I decided to make this the next topic is that there's so much going on in public discourse today that involves echoes of the past. And honestly, I often feel like I don't know enough history or scripture to engage in the conversations that are being had. Today's Christian in America has access to 2,000 years of history and theology and every imaginable English translation of God's word. Yet it seems that even with all this access because the internet, we ha- we know so little and we're not able to critically put it all together. So what we end up with are these silos or compartments of information. Uh, and that's what this podcast is all about. No More Silos is about connecting the dots so that together we will know the truth. So recently, while doing research for another project I'm involved in, I was reading an article about how to pursue racial unity in the church by an author who is ideologically and theologically against a critical assessment and evaluation of systemic racism. I know it sounds oxymoronic to say that out loud, but that is what we're dealing with in the world today. Anyway, the article talked about fighting for quote-unquote historic Christian faith or historic Christianity. And that's not the first time that I've read that in articles like this or read it on a social media post or heard it said um, in the news or on something I was watching. And so I asked the question, what is historic Christianity? Are we working from the same definition? So I googled it. reading this article, I realized that we were not speaking the same language. You're probably familiar with the term dog whistles, where people say one thing, but they actually mean another. And so when you consider that Christianity has been around for over 2000 years, um, you would think, or at least I would, that when someone says, let's return to historical Christianity, You know, you're thinking the apostles, the New Testament, maybe the first or second century, um, you know, the theologians, African church fathers like Tertullian or Augustine. Uh, But no, actually, what I learned in Googling historical Christianity uh, today really means since the 1700s, you know, as Christianity was practiced in early American history. In other words, theologians like George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards who compromised their Christian beliefs by engaging in chattel slavery, engaging in the socioeconomic practices of the time, regardless of what they believed about Christ. And so I saw, I noticed in this article, and there's a couple of articles I came across, and so one talked about the theological differences between evangelicalism and fundamentalism. 
And I really don't want to get into those details here, um, but uh, Protestant fundamentalism historically is only about 150 years old, and the evangelical tradition as we know it today really only goes back about 250, maybe 300 years to the Great Awakening. Um, but the fact that art, one of the articles I found pointed out that the fact that both of these movements are relatively new means that they can't actually be, by definition, what we have always believed and practiced as Christians. Um, there may be themes of certain teachings, uh, as one of the things the article points out, um, that are older than the movements themselves. But And I'll have this article in the show notes, but the traditions as a whole aren't what Christianity has always looked like. And so this is uh, why here on No More Silos, it's so important to really look at tearing down the barriers, tearing down those silos of information. Uh, we separate our history from our our faith and our practice, our orthopraxy, uh, how we practice Christianity. And so it becomes important to understand the 2,000-year history of Christianity and kind of put these things in their right place and context. In fact, a great documentary that I often refer to, it's actually 10 years old now, is the PBS documentary, God in America. They do a great job of telling this history, and I'll include a link to that in the show notes. But another resource that's really good about digging deep and deep diving into what actually is historic Christianity is Jamar Tisby's book, The Color of Compromise. Um, it addresses the history of why this is important to the history of systemic racism. So, I wanted to mention that uh, as we are going along here, the orthopraxy, which, you know, means how we practice. And so for Christians, it's about how we love, because didn't Jesus say, you will know my disciples by how they what, how they love. And so the article also says, this one of the articles that talks about what is historic Christianity, it says, and I quote, we can get so caught up in looking for the heretics uh, that we actually deny our orthopraxy, loving our neighbor as yourself, doing unto others as we would have them do unto us, and our orthodoxy, that love is only possible with a Trinitarian God. The call to love God and neighbor is tied to the doctrine and reality that God is love because God is Trinity, an eternal community of mutual self-giving love, end quote. So, when we talk about what is historic Christianity, let's not lose sight of what is actually historic Christianity, like the last 2,000 years and looking at that in a broad context, versus someone wanting to get back to, or using the dog whistle of historic Christianity, attempting to get back to or to return to a time when black and brown people were enslaved. That I have, a, I have a bit of a problem with. But let's take that a little bit further when we're talking about historic Christianity or historical Christianity. To some, historic Christian teaching simply refers to what we have believed uh, for years and how did we arrive at some of our doctrines and our theology over the last 2,000 years. Uh, I, have a, I have a book called The Seven Ecumenical Councils, and it's not... Uh, I probably won't even mention it in the show notes. Send me an email at podcast at ericasantiago.com if that's something you're really interested in. But I have a book that I picked up a few years back when I was in seminary, and 
it walks you through the first 700 years, right? After Jesus Christ's, uh, his resurrection, because there was a lot of uh, of discussion, a lot of debate and consensus that uh, about what was heretical and what was orthodoxy, about what was true and what was something somebody made up. You know, think about it like a game of telephone in uh, the Mediterranean region. Hearing the story of the resurrection, hearing about this event, people sometimes got the story mixed up or they didn't have all of it there. And that factors into something we'll talk about later in today's episode, American civil religion. But I just want to point out right now that historic Christianity really is encompassed by two things, uh, the early history of Christianity, and that is the decisions by the ecumenical councils and the doctrines that were articulated by the creeds. And the three main creeds were solidified about three, five hundred years after Jesus, and there were some tweaks. And some of you may actually be familiar with the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Um, this is the one that uh, there was a Christian group that made a song out of it a few years back that was real popular, and uh, many Protestant denominations, and I even think the Catholic Church says some version of this um, on a weekly basis as part of their liturgy. And so I'll just read to you uh, this version that I got off of Wikipedia. Um, it says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, let me back up here just a moment. When we say the Holy Catholic Church, what I'm reading from has that C as a lowercase because the word Catholic actually means universal. Um, so you kind of sit there and say to yourself, wow, the Catholic Church really just decided they were going to be the universal church. It, you know, that's what they called themselves. So the early Christians developed these creeds as a teaching tool. Remember, Jesus said, make disciples, which means to teach. Disciple being one of those churchy words that we really don't use outside of church, like repent. Um, and so disciple simply means to teach. And because they didn't have the Bible yet, um, it's a statement of confession of belief uh, that people said before they were baptized. And like I said, some churches still recite this creed as part of their weekly liturgy. So it's important to consider if we're hearing historical Christianity this is not what they're talking about. They're talking about 300 years ago. They're not talking about the creeds of the early church or the ecumenical councils and doctrines. I think it's important to address the historical fact of the ecumenical councils as well um, as their place in understanding Christian history. And so when I do that I, in teaching Bible study, I usually share or show a graphic that I got out of um, a PDF, a timeline uh, actually is what it is, from the Emotionally Healthy Church uh, folks on their website. And it's uh, Peter Scazzaro. He's a pastor in Queens, uh, has a great ministry around just developing your inside from the inside out so that you can really fulfill your, your God-given purpose 
through Jesus Christ. And so one of the things, resources that they have on their website is this uh, document that outlines Christian history. And what's really useful for it is because it focuses on the event of the resurrection that happened 2,000 plus years ago. Um, And it takes you through uh, just, you know, visually, then you have the first ecumenical council in 325 AD. And then you have uh, the great schism of East and West in 1054. And then you see there's different branches of Christianity that kind of break off. And all of that matters. Um, In fact, if historic Christianity is only focused on the last couple of hundred years, then, you know, a curious person would say, well, what was going on before? What did they believe before? And all of us have had to learn about the Middle Ages and the Renaissance in school. But one of the leading reasons that people of color sometimes call Christianity the white man's religion has a lot to do with the artistic representations of Christ from the Renaissance that continued to permeate Christian church culture well into the 20th century. And if you think about when was the Renaissance in the 1500s, there's actually a bigger concern there. In fact, I actually had started recording this podcast uh, or prepping to record this podcast about a week ago and I kind of pulled the brakes and the reason is is because I came across this article because you know when you're researching you keep finding more stuff and you go down one rabbit hole and and then another and then another but I think it's worthwhile mentioning that the tie-in for the renaissance and what's going on and this article is entitled White American Christianity is rooted in colonial empire building. And so if we're looking at historic Christianity as a phrase, as a dog whistle, this article, and I'll have it in the, in the show notes, but here's a highlight of something, some of the things that are mentioned in the article. Uh, the author references Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, talking about the slave-holding empire run by Christians. Because here's the thing. If you are looking at historic Christianity as 300 years ago in the time of Jonathan Edwards and and John Wesley and uh, George Whitfield, who compromised their theology to accept and ignore uh, the evils of chattel slavery, what you have is a slaveholding empire, which was the United States in those uh, early years, and it's run by Christians, which is kind of what Paul's talking about in Romans. Paul attempts to, the article says that Paul attempts to account for the moral chaos and degradation of humanity. His argument begins with the claim that all human beings have plenty of access to knowledge about God and morality because God has plainly revealed it. But ungodliness and wickedness flourish when people in their wickedness suppress the truth. Paul is saying that people actively suppress the truth in their wickedness as an expression of their wickedness and to enable further wickedness. So, okay, so dialing back here to the 1500s, maybe a couple of hundred years before you have the uh, American colonies, but the source, as we see in the book Stamped from the Beginning, by Ibram X. Kendi, which came out a few years ago. And if you follow me on Instagram at Cultural Christianity, I've I've posted a picture of that there. The article that I came across today says, this begs the question of whether the ultimate historical source for such heresy 
can be identified. You see, the question about the historic Christian or historical Christianity and why it's a dog whistle and why it's problematic is outlined in Color of Compromise and in Stamped from the Beginning in great detail. But this article, the author of this article, actually focuses on it as a heresy. And it points back to the 15th century, uh, 15th century Europe. So what we see here, an article goes on to say, as Europe began conquering and colonizing the world in the name of Christ, the story begins with those first imperial powers, Spain and Portugal. And you remember in Spain, what were they doing in Spain in the 14 and 1500s? They were getting rid of all the Jewish people, right? It was the... um, Spanish Inquisition. Uh, Spain had also been uh, ruled by uh, by Muslims for a number of years, uh, North Africans, and and they also were expelled. So there's all this stuff going on. So there's great documentaries out there about this time period. I definitely encourage you to watch them because you will see the challenges uh, that come into play and where the church compromises. So then the article says that you had all these different colonial nations, Holland, France, Belgium, and so on, and they were empire-building nations uh, that were focused on these great adventures. And what do we learn in school? You know, Columbus discovered America, which we all know is inaccurate. It's wrong. It's false. It's a lie. And as we approach Columbus Day in about a month, um, you know, my kids know Columbus didn't find anything. Columbus showed up in Puerto Rico and, uh, and, and created all kinds of havoc and chaos. Um, they, these European nations, though the article goes on to say, they confidently believed themselves to be the center of the world, superior to all other cultures, entitled to conquer and colonize, and in so doing, actively advancing God's will. The European powers believed this for many centuries. Some would say that they and their descendants believe it still. These European conquerors and the church officials who blessed and authorized them had 1,400 years in which to learn key elements of Christian theology that might have affected their plans. Three of the most relevant include the doctrine that all humans are made in the image of God and thus equal worth to God, of equal worth to God. That's Genesis chapter 1, right? The doctrine that all human beings are kin, as all are descendants from Adam and Eve. That's Genesis chapter 2. And I would go further to say in Galatians 3 that those of us who are not Jewish ethnically, but are Gentile, which is basically everybody else, that we as Christians, as believers in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are children and descendants of Abraham. We are adopted into the family of Abraham. So, And then the article says, and the doctrine that God is the author of moral law, which includes universal bans on things like murder, adultery, theft, and covetousness. That's in Exodus. But the European imperial powers, the article goes on to say, decided to believe heresies instead. They believed in the unequal worth and value of and in ontological differences between persons based on their race and color, and they came to believe that God's moral law against murder, adultery, theft, and covetousness did not apply in the relation between European conquerors and those they conquered, end quote. 
So you can see why I had to include this in our conversation today about historical Christianity and American civil religion, because what we are clearly confused about, what we are clearly not teaching in our history, in American history, is we're not putting into context the fact that the European colonizers broke all kinds of Old Testament rules and New Testament rules to steal people from their homes and bring them here, to kill the people who were already here, to uh, treat them as less than God's children. I mean, this is, this is hugely problematic. And so that is why when we look at the timeline of, of the church from the New Testament era, from Pentecost, all the way through uh, the first couple of hundred years where you had the early African church fathers, um, the first ecumenical councils, the creeds were established. Um, the way that the early church, early church taught theology was very different than the way that we teach it now. People had this information. We're not talking about people who just didn't have any information, had no historical context for what they were engaging in. They actually did, and to the extent that they may not have, they had uh, teachers of religion and rhetoric that taught all this stuff. So that is where we look at historical Christianity. That is the perspective that we look to historical Christianity from. It is a dog whistle. It is problematic. And that leads us to a conversation about, well, what is the gospel and what is American civil religion? How do those things play into this conversation about historical Christianity? In our last episode, in episode three, I talked about syncretism. I defined syncretism in our Bible study basics. I defined syncretism as the combining or attempted blending of different religions, cultures, or schools of thought. In other words, we take one uh, worldview, and we throw it in with another worldview, and then we get this whole other third thing. And in some contexts, you know, if you're like a fan of Stephen Covey, you want to have a kind of a blending of ideas, if you will, because it makes sense. That's how we arrive at the third option. I think people have even written books called The Third Option, you know, it's in the business world. But the thing that's challenging about syncretism in the church and in uh, in our context as, uh, as believers or in your context as someone who is exploring Christianity is this. We cannot take a non-biblical pagan worldview and mix that up with a biblical worldview and think that that's okay. That's not how the gospel works. Uh, the gospel is exclusive. Recently, there was a study about this uh, in a survey that pointed out or observed that the majority of American Christians don't believe the gospel. So when you have folks referring to historical Christianity, that becomes problematic when you consider <laughs> that there's a bunch of folks who say they're Christian, but they don't actually believe the doctrines of Christianity or believe uh, that believe the gospel and what the gospel is. And so we'll just take a couple of moments here to talk about what is the gospel. So in this article, it says that the survey found that a majority of people who describe themselves as Christian accept a works-oriented means to God's acceptance. But that's not true. We have faith and grace, and that's what we need. The survey con was conducted by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, 
And it said that it it found that American adults today increasingly adopt a salvation-can-be-earned perspective and that they will earn a place in heaven. And that's not actually, again, Christian beliefs. Um, So what does that tell us? Well, that tells us that uh, Christians who believe that uh, salvation can be earned probably are not reading their Bibles. They're not reading the New Testament. Uh, They're looking for another way. What is that third option? Syncretism, right? So a few Bible verses that will help you and that were mentioned in the article uh, to look at this further uh, would be Matthew chapter 19, James chapter 2, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, Romans, you can read the whole thing, but specifically they reference Romans 1, 3, and 4, uh, chapters 1, 3, and 4. I would add um, Acts chapter 2, 3, and 10, um, Luke chapter 4, and then uh, my personal favorite is Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. Um, and The Sermon on the Mount runs in Matthew's Gospel account, chapters 5 through 7. And the reason that I like to point out to and refer to the Sermon on the Mount is because Jesus kind of breaks down how we see things in the Old Testament with a lot of, you have heard or you have been taught, and he makes it simpler. And he, he makes it simpler. And so somewhere, I think I saw this on a Facebook group, someone said, we must start with Jesus as the ultimate, final, and most clear revelation of God and work back into the Hebrew scriptures to see that they lead up to and culminate in him. And so we see that on display in Matthew, uh, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. But I want to share with you because, you know, with No More Silos, one of the things that I like to do is refer you to other books. I mean, I I like reading and I love books and I know that listening to a podcast is, in the relative scheme of things, a short amount of time and, you, and I'm trying to fill so much information in here for us. But I want to recommend a book by Andy Stanley called Irresistible. In fact, the full title is Irresistible, Reclaiming the New that Jesus Unleashed for the World. And it came out a few years ago, and I'll have a link to it in the show notes. But Andy Stanley says this. He says, We believe Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, but not because the Bible tells us so. It's better than that. The time has come for a return to the original revolutionary event-centered message. I'll say that again, and when I say it, I want you to think of everything we just talked about with historical Christianity. We believe Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, but not because the Bible tells us so. It's better than that. The time has come for a return to the original revolutionary event-centered message. And so in this book, he asks the question, what does love require of me? And if any of you follow uh, Andy Stanley uh, in his ministry, you know that he's been preaching on this for quite some time. But uh, And you can visit his website for uh, a whole series. I think there's uh, six parts to the study, uh, to the book. But And we went through it in our Bible study a couple of years ago when the book came out. And we actually... Uh, dovetailed it with a study of the book of Ephesians because so much of it goes with that, how to live your life as a Christian. And uh, and one of the things, and I mentioned this a little few minutes ago, Jesus said, you will know them by how they love. And what does this mean for the early Christians? Um, it, 
you know, we look at Jesus's commands, love God, love your neighbor, love as I have loved you. And so we've got to stop using God's word to beat people up because this is not what No More Silos is about. We're not here to beat people up. We should be using God's word to set people free. And God's measure of success, according to Irresistible and, and according to God's word and uh uh, in what he's, what he's, uh, what Andy Stanley writes about here is, but he points this out. He says, God's measure of success is how far we open our arms to others. And so if you will take a moment and visualize the cross, the shape of the cross, there's the part that goes up and down. That's the vertical part. And that is our reconciliation to God. That's, you know, what, what was broken in the garden of Eden. We are reconciled through God, to God, through Jesus Christ, through his uh, resurrection his death and his resurrection. And, but if you think of the, the horizontal part of the cross, then that means that we are connected to one another. We are relational beings as humans. That's a big part of, of our love. So what does love require of me? What does love require of us? Jesus defined it. He said, love God, that's your vertical and love your neighbor. Love as I have loved you. And so in the book, Uh, Andy Stanley points out, he says, the better why. He says, the New Testament, New Covenant answer to why is always, that's what love requires of me because that's what's best for them. So if we go back to what we were talking about, about historical Christianity from a dog whistle standpoint and the, the 300 years ago, that's not what's best. There's no scenario where keeping people enslaved based on the color of their skin and where they came from is what's best for them. In fact, in uh, Irresistible, he goes on to write New Covenant, in other words, the New Testament, the new covenant that was created by Jesus is always connected to a who. Often the who beside you. The old covenant why centered on doing right by God. The new covenant why centers on doing right by your neighbor. So who is my neighbor? When you consider that in the colonial times that the European colonists did not consider Africans or the Native Americans, the indigenous people who lived here already, their neighbor. That answers a lot of Christianity questions, right? Because some of us are walking around going, how can people claim to be Christian and treat people so poorly? That's how. Because we're not following Jesus. We're following something else. And so that will bring me to the conversation about secular humanism. Um, A couple of years ago, I came across an article um, by Natasha Crane. She writes books on apologetics for families to teach their children about Jesus. And she wrote an article entitled, How Sunday Schools Are Raising the Next Generation of Secular Humanists. And it really made me pause because, uh, when I read this quote from the article, which I'll share it with you. But it made me pause because uh, it is something that also leads us into what I'm about to talk about next, which is American civil religion. And the quote from the article is this that I want to share. Secular humanism in our churches is preparing our children to be good without God as adults. We are not actively teaching the mystery of the gospel effectively to combat against the prevailing culture outside our doors. And so there's this big culture war going on. And I think I said it in a previous episode. It's not that we should be be at war with one another. 
But what we are teaching our kids, what we are teaching as far as history is concerned, because we have, um, to use the, the popular term, we've whitewashed it, but really what we've done is we have made it so that it doesn't sound so bad to us because it's actually pretty bad. It's pretty bad to say that an entire, uh, that several generations of Christians decided they were better than everybody else and they went out to conquer the world in the name of Jesus. And now what that got us to is good without God because people think they can do this themselves. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But where do we get that idea from? We get that idea in the American civil religion. So when I talk about, you know, research and rabbit holes and Google, man, I was looking up historical Christianity. I was trying to focus on understanding how we can achieve racial unity and the unity of Christ in the church. And I see this historic Christianity and I Google that. And that led me to something else that I had also addressed in Bible study previously. And the context for that was actually me teaching about cults and counter counterfeit religions. So join me next time on the next episode where we will talk about American civil religion. I really appreciate you joining me today for uh, today's podcast, episode four. We got through historical Christianity. Um, We talked about the gospel in the book Irresistible by Andy Stanley, uh, Stamped from the Beginning by Ibram X. Kendi, The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. Those will all be in the show notes for you and the documentary from PBS, God in America. All of those links will be in the show notes. I thank you so much. We are out of time for today's episode. When we come back, we will tackle American civil religion. Thanks for joining me on No More Silos. Please follow me at Cultural Christianity on Instagram or Cultural Christianity on Facebook. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast and share it with your friends who are interested in history, politics, religion, Christianity, the gospel. Uh, it might be your way in to proclaim the gospel to someone who's never heard it before. Have a great day. <music>